Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Blix. This is Jay. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTac Games Podcast, your podcast of exploring the strange worlds of the TriTac Games and telling your friends about it and getting them to come and play too. This week, we are following up on our last recorded podcast on colonies. There were still a few things we hadn't covered yet, so we decided to add some more. So we're not quite sure how many uh, weeks' worth of podcasts this is all going to turn out, but we're hoping that you're bearing with us and that you're having a good time listening to this, because we're having a good time doing it. We also don't mind if you're a bear with us. We're okay whoever's listening. And bear right and bear left and frog left, but anyway. This week we don't have Trav or Amber with us, but we do have Paul. Paul's good. Hello, everyone. And we do have Jay, who's our returning host from so long ago. Hi. And the rest of the favorite gang of Peter and John are here as well. And and you're who again? I'm Bruce. Okay. So sit back and we'll try to entertain you for the next possibly two hours. <laughs> we kind of went far afield because we are talking about colonies in the Fringeworthy late campaign. We're not going to go over what we went over before because that's already on the previous podcast. Yeah, I was kind of confused. Why are we why are we specifically discussing the late campaign? Due to the difficulty of finding enough fringeworthy to form even exploration teams, it's going to take quite a while before the various methods of producing fringeworthy uh, explorers is going to be able to produce enough people to even think about having colonies. It's pretty much assumed that uh, you know time will move on. They'll find more fringeworthy, and as the campaign and the commonwealth, the burgeoning new commonwealth, which originally starts off as being the alien core, becomes more and more sophisticated, more and more people are involved. A lot of the people that originally said, "Hey, I'm fringeworthy, but I don't want to, I don't want to do that because I got a good life here," they're going to be more and more willing to go on out and join the actual core and, and do some of these other things. Because a lot of people don't have the bug for exploration, but they like to do other things. They might want to be a trucker on the fringe paths. They might want to be a doctor going to uh, uplift various worlds. They might want to be an ambassador. They might want to be all these different things that you can be in fringeworthy besides being an explorer. But initially, there's only going to be enough people to be really explorers. Here's a question. If somebody came up to you and waved a gem at you and it glowed and they said, you're fringeworthy, you get to go out on the on the fringe paths and explore new worlds, what would you personally say? Me personally, because I love this game, would, yeah, yeah, sure, I'd want to do it, but there's lots of people that wouldn't. Okay. How about you, Peter? Wow, that's a tough question. If you'd asked me that 10 years ago, I'd be right on it, but... Uh, right now, I'd be like, nah, I need a couple of years. Yeah, because he's got a little girl who he'd have to leave. He might have a wife that he'd have to leave. 
I mean, you know, there's people that you know join the Navy and they go off for six to eight weeks on a tour on a submarine and can't talk to anybody and come home and their family's fine with it. But it takes a special kind of person to agree to that kind of relationship. Yeah, I I couldn't leave right now. No, there's no way. I I would I would be like, that's great. That's the coolest thing ever, and it's gonna have to wait. Well, if it was me, the guy would be standing there with the crystal going, and be looking around, and I'd be standing at the door behind him going, come on, this way, go, go, go. (laughs) (laughs) You know, honestly, though, I might go for the training and preparation. I could see working as support, you know, like, as long as it was, like, limited. Peter the mailman. I could see going away for, like, several weeks at a time. Take off, go down there, maybe go do some minor thing that needs to be done. But as for going on missions and stuff, no, not now. But, I mean, think of your average person. If they have a family, they're probably going to have kids about maybe 10 years old. In 10 years, those kids are going off to college. They're out of the house. Your career has either gone where you wanted to or hasn't gone where you want to, and you might be ready for a change. Oh, sure, yeah. But, see, 10 years is what we're talking about being toward the middle of the middle campaign, so therefore, you know, that's what I'm saying is a lot of these people who were unavailable before might start becoming available as time goes on because their lives change to the point where they're willing to jump into the, the possibility of being an explorer or being a support person for an explorer. If you have kids going to college, you'd be looking at, at that setting bonus as a great way to pay for that college. Oh, yeah. That won't be the million dollars they got in year one, year two, but still, it's going to be a hefty bonus. Sure. Obviously, I'm not remembering it clearly. My impression was that peop- in the in, in about in the early discovery phase, that uh, people were kind of uh, drafted. They didn't get that much choice about whether or not they were going out. Well, it depends on your country. Some countries said you're you're joining. Other countries, like America, says no. Well, I don't have to join. You know, and that's why they waived that big one hundred thousand dollar bonus or million dollar bonus or whatever we decide to pump it up to in the next edition to sign up and of course what does team one do with, with their bonus they donate most of it to charity <laughs> unless of course you had kids that were trying to go to college in which case you donated to your your kids college of their choice yeah. right <laughs> you, you donated to your family right so as time goes on in the campaign Things are going to change, and that's one reason why we want people to think broader than the initial, we found the fringe path yesterday. What's that world like? Well, that world is very different than the middle, and it's really different from the late campaign. And we're talking about the late campaign where being a fringe-worthy explorer is, is a career choice now. All right, so we wanted to talk about some of the other aspects of creating a colony out on the fringe path somewhere. We don't know for sure, you know, where this colony is going to be, how close it's going to be to Earth Prime or any of the sponsoring worlds. So our answers are going to have to be fairly generic, but we don't want to get bogged down with, you know, a lot of particulars because we know that it always is going to matter who the sponsoring world is, stuff like that. We just want to talk about some of the possibilities here so you can be jazzed up about, you know, some of the things you could do with these various colonies as you uh, as a player and you as a GM set up these kinds of adventures and these kinds of places for your fringeworthy people to be at. The first question I had here was, you have a, a colony, what's going to be the ruling body in the colony? I mean, somebody's got to be in charge, so what's it going to be like? Peter, you know, what's the one that jazzes you up about? 
<sighs> Who's going to be in charge? Um, I kind of like the benevolent dictatorship. Okay, what would that be like? Uh, you have a guy who's absolutely in charge and everybody listens to him. It's sort of like um, Rick is in The Walking Dead. Or at least that's how I see it. He's, he's in charge. No one questions him. And he maintains his authority through, through pure might. But as you said, he's benevolent. So he's not doing it out of maliciousness or anything. He's taking that role because it's necessary and everyone is fine with him taking that role. But he is in charge, and there's no question about it. And no one voted him. He took it because that because he was the he was the man for the job. Uh, I I kind of like that. Yeah, I always see this as the, the the leader sees himself as the servant of the goals and of the colony itself. Right. He's not in it for the power. He's not in it for the authority. He's the reluctant leader who's, uh, however, competent. To do the job, and but once he's taken the job, you know he's not doesn't want to hear people back talking him without a good reason. Because weakness is dangerous for the group. His weakness would be dangerous for everybody, and and for him, it wasn't an opportunity; it was a calling, or forced upon him, or forced upon him. Right, right. He he had to do it because no one else was doing it, or no one else was doing it adequately. Nobody had this the the had the skills. Right. The reason why I like this one is because I don't see the colonies being very huge. I don't see them being very big. I see it as a, as a re- relatively small group. It's not going to be a regular group of people. These, these are people who uh, are doing something special. So I, I think they could exist like this rather well. Uh, you, know, and, you know, another example is Lost, uh, the TV show Lost. Uh, what was his name? Jack. The doctor. Jack. Okay. Yeah. Jack was, I mean, if you look at it, he was a benevolent dictator. You know, he was in charge, um, and everybody looked at him. And they did everything he told them to do. Right, but they didn't vote him in power. He took it because no one else was taking it, you know, and he was in charge. And and it got to a point in the show where he was literally dictating orders to people. So, so you're saying that basically in this case, the the, the ruler of the colony – Falls out naturally. Who basically it's it's self appointed more or less is what you're saying, right? And, and when you say benevolent dictator, what that means to me is that you could disobey him, and he's not just going to you know put a hole through your head because he's a benevolent dictator. But you're going to meet resistance from the entire group because he's in charge. Well, there's going to be consequences, but it's not going to be draconian consequences. <laughs> right, right, right. And I, and I think that's why I like – Usually it's a more fatherly or motherly type figure. Right. Dictatorship just gets such a bad rap because normally it is bad. Yeah. You know, in this case, you know, the, the word fits, but it doesn't have the same connotation because the benevolent part completely changes his role. Well, Paul, why don't, since you're, you come from the military background, why don't you go for the corporate hack or absolute dictatorship? <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, okay, I was going to expand on what Peter was saying because the benevolent dictatorship is tailor-written to those born to power. Victorians, to zeal, golden horde, they all have a noble class that is born to power. They don't question whether they can give an order. They know that an order will be followed. Mm. Think about it. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. In the late campaign, all the Victorian Prime knows about the the fringe paths. So you have a Russians, a Russian noble who finds that he's fringe worthy, raises up a fringe worthy colony, and goes out and finds some places to start his own Russia. Which 
you know, also segues over to Absolute Dictator. Yeah. <laughs> he, again, he doesn't question whether his, his orders will be followed or not. He expects them to be followed. And but as corporate hack, um, we have a perfectly legitimate Earth analog, the British East India Company. <laughs> yeah. All political appointees, you bought your way in, you bought a commission as an officer. And if the if the natives didn't, you know, follow your orders, shoot them and order up another set of natives. Where would this be more appropriate than uh, another type of, of colony? It seems to me it always kind of falls into your mining, into your plantation, into your, um, you know, when you're basically there to harvest resources. That's where I see the corporate hacked or the absolute dictatorship falling into sway more often. What do you think? Certainly, certainly, well possible. I mean, we have analogs for that with like uh, whaling operations or the operations in the South Pacific harvesting animals' materials. Yeah, and you have a softer version of it if you consider things like um, a Pullman and uh, Pullman Town. Basically, it's a company town. He everything is run. He dictates how you live and you know everything. But it's sort of it's sort of on the softer side. But you didn't want to get on the wrong side of Pullman. You know, it lasted up until the to, until it got unionized, and then it sort of went away at that point. Bruce, you have a place near you. It's outside Atlanta, the the spring something Georgia, the town that's run on a uh, on a corporate contract. News to me. <laughs> Yeah, I read some months ago, there's a town that is chartered with a complete corporate contract. Everything in the town, except for, like, the mayor's job, is outsourced. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That's neat. Hey, um, you know, I was thinking about this, and and you know where you you see the the corporate hacker absolute dictatorship is um, drug cartels. You know, you look at Brazil where these warlords, these, these drug warlords have taken complete control and it's because they have such a valuable resource. You know, they, they're selling drugs. It's, it's such a high uh, moneymaker. There's other issues going on there too. When was the last time Anheuser-Busch did a drive-by on Milwaukee Brewing? They have a better mechanism available for solving their problems and so they tend to use that. And so the guys down at Anheuser-Busch are going to be much better moneymakers than shooters but in an environment that selects for shooters, you're going to see the the, the most the most uh, violent warlord rise to the top. Well, and that's what and that's what I'm saying with this colony. If you've got this relatively small group of people, and I say it could be a thousand people, even, you know that that's prime for something like that to happen. Because what is the alternate? What what government are you going to appeal to for help? Um, okay. If one guy rises above everybody else. What's to prevent me from walking back through the gates and going home? If you signed a contract that said you had to be there for a certain period of time, and if you didn't, there were going to be consequences? I wouldn't sign that if there was no way to appeal back to the authorizing agency to say, hey, this guy's being mean to me. Make him, make him stop. Well, that doesn't mean you don't have a, uh, let's say, a union rep. It doesn't mean you don't have somebody within the company that you can appeal to. They could even have an HR department in your colony to try to handle these kinds of situations. There's another center of power, and you're going to see kind of a conflict between Warlord Rick and the HR guy until they figure out who decides how it goes. Well, Warlord Rick has the crystal, and if it's a ring station, he locks it down. No one goes in and out unless Warlord Warlord Rick or his... uh, his trusted lieutenant opens the gate up and lets things through. 
Right, right. You know? And and there's always there's always the what prevents you from leaving? Oh, you can leave. <laughs> Whether you leave on your feet or not is another story. You're there for a reason. I mean, you signed up because you were expecting some – usually because you're expecting some big benefit off of it. You're a colonist for a reason rather than being an explorer. There are other jobs out there. So you're in it because you want something out of this. What could be out there to make somebody volunteer to uh, join up with Warlord Rick there? Ooh. Lots of money. Lots of money. Technology. Okay, money is definitely one of them. You know, if you're expecting a big payday and if you leave, you get nothing, it's going to keep you there, probably, unless the things get really bad. A higher standard of living. Mm-hmm. But, you know, and there's also power. You know, if you're one of the end guys, mm-hmm. you know, you have power over other people. But I, I will say, Jay, I'm not, I'm not trying to argue with you. I, I agree. I, I don't see uh, a, an absolute dictatorship working here as well. I, I would think that benevolent dictatorship would rise prior, you know, much easier than this. But I, oh, it's uh, not the, impossible. The problem, the problem with the concept of benevolent dictatorship is what keeps Warlord Rick benevolent. At what point, you know, does he not decide, hey, this is all mine. I can do whatever I want here. That's why we like to try to set up groups with some kind of uh, internal feedback mechanism and some sort of internal checks and balances to what's happened. Because historically, you let one guy one guy run everything, and he tends to run it to uh, pander to his own needs. I said, it depends where, you come, where it comes from. You know, if it's from Earth Prime, it, it'll probably be UN-backed or something like that, which means it definitely will be Lots of regulations, and it'd be a UN observer coming by every so often just to make sure things are kosher. If it came from from the Mongols, uh, that's going to be some appointee from the from the from the Khan, who basically has complete has complete utter control of the of the colony. And if, for example, it comes from a religious order, and if you leave, you're going to get excommunicated. Well, then you're going to have to put up with whatever happens and hope that things get better. And by the way, when you leave, you cannot take anything with you that belongs to the colony. So you get to leave wearing your shorts. But, but you know, <laughs> I, I would say there, there are examples of this. You guys have thought way too much about how to keep people on the wrong side of that gate. I, I'm just questioning where that's coming from there. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on. There, there are good examples of, of where colonies have been started up and they haven't, you know, haven't naturally – run into this corrupt dictatorship where a guy automatically takes advantage. I mean, there are benevolent people and there are benevolent people in power. Um, you know, if you look at the early American colonies, most of them were not run by, you know, horrible people. They were very far from, from England and they could have, you know, they could have done that. They could have gotten away with it for any period of time. Three words, Salem, witch trials. No, that was that was mass hysteria. That was that was not one person. Everybody got in on that. And that was about a hundred years after the colonies had been settled. <sighs> I'm I'm just saying, and it, it doesn't happen everywhere. I'm just saying there are there are examples. Right. Well, that's why we're talking about there being more than one, Peter. I mean, if you want to talk some more about the benevolent dictatorship, that's fine. But we're talking right now about this this kind of corporate absolute dictatorship, and you know why would it why would it occur, and how could it occur? H. Uh, Beam Piper wrote a number of books where he ta- where he kind of replayed an age of imperialism, but with hyperdrives. And if a company could get a charter to a single world, if a company can appeal to the government and say, "Okay, see the world through that portal. That's ours. Nobody gets through unless we say so. Say so, and you back us up on it." 
well, then they've got enforcement to make sure that they're the only ones who get to exploit that world. And that's where you'd see a single company planet where anybody who comes and goes is controlled by the corporate structure and the manager on site. Yeah, the British East India Company, the Dutch trading companies of the colonial period on Earth in the 19th century. Or, yeah, 19th yep. century. But they all answer to the stockholders, though. So the real controllers actually are back on Earth Prime, funding them the money and supplies to run that colony. But they're at the colony, depending upon how the other aspects of the colony are set up. If it's set up for there is an absolute dictatorship, that's just the way it is. You bought into that when you came here to be here. It sounded like a good idea when you did it. And it might still be a good idea. An absolute dictatorship does not necessarily have to be a bad thing. You know, it just happens to be that they're saying, this is what we're here for, this is what we're going to do, and nothing is going to get in our way. You're not going to get in our way, the natives aren't going to get in our way, the weather's not going to get in our way, we're going to get this job done. Uh, what would be the story function of this kind of setup? Let's say there was a war going on. You happen to be on a world in which there were a lot of broken war machines and possibly really good weapons. Okay, you're there trying to find weaponry to save the lives of hundreds, if not millions of people out on other worlds. You find out once you get there, oh, the radiation level is a little higher than we expected. Okay, that means that in order to get this job done, we're probably going to lose about half of our lifespan in doing it. Maybe and some of us may die. But guess what, folks? That's what we're here to do. Wrap your family jewels with extra layers of lead put on your suit, and get out there and do the job. Hey, I don't want to do it. I don't care. Get out and do the job, or we'll just throw you outside without the suit. Whichever way you want to do it. Bruce is still back in that place where he's, where he's ordering people around on the other side of the uh, portal. Uh, my, my point is, what story point does that serve? What kind of plot do you build around that happening? The, the story is you going out and finding the weapons, finding the equipment you need, going through the privations. If you survive, coming back to your home world, being a hero, your side wins. The bad guys get killed because of the stuff you brought back. Your family and friends and all the things that you value live and survive as a result. It's a big success. That sounds like a really, really long session. Doesn't have to be, but yeah, I mean, there's campaigns you could set up along these lines. If you're running a colony adventure, you're basically talking about something that's going to have at least an arc of some kind. So yeah, it's going to be a campaign. Yeah. Oh, well, I have actually, I thought about another way you can get an absolute dictatorship on a colony. It's an old pirate raid base that basically settled. It's fringe pirates. They've settled, and now they're they have a colony now. They they do go out for a little raid series often to get some extra stuff, but it's they're all ex pirates more or less. An unfringe pirate base. Yeah, well, former fringe pirate base. Well, we're not pirating right now. Fringe pirate base. We, well, you know another another thing that this could lead to another type of adventure. This could lead to. You could take us from a different direction. You may not be the guys living in this colony. The adventure could be you discover this colony, and then you're like, we got to get back out and warn I dead about this. As you get sucked into it and you realize, oh my god, this thing, this, this is not good. Or it could be I dead knows about this colony and needs to get 
people in there to find out what's going on and maybe it's a maybe it's a spy mission you know you go in you join the colony collect information and get it back to Idet. peter is talking about exactly what my question was about what sort of stories could you use this to tell hi welcome to woodbury i'm glad that he's telling those stories but those aren't the only stories <laughs> yeah no 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 peter's stories are the only stories there's the only stories you could ever tell it's all peter man it's all peter they're all Peter built. Okay, Peter built stories. Yeah. <laughs> so, but you talk about there being a governing body that's actually outside the colony, then that's what we're talking about as far as an outside tribunal, for example. Now, I'm using the word tribunal because it's just another form of government. But the point is, is that you, know, you if you have a problem or if if there's an issue that needs to be resolved. It doesn't get resolved there on the colony. You have to appeal to this external organization in order to get whatever change you want to happen. Otherwise, things operate on pretty much a steady state the way they are on the colony. A UN-run colony. Uh, yeah, it's all bureaucrats. <laughs> you got to fill this form out, and we'll sit back to back to Geneva, and they'll come back with, with an answer in about two weeks. Yeah. Oh, God, it sounds like work. Yeah. Or you're in this, uh, you're you're there working and everything's fine, and you get these directives that just come plopping in that must be implemented. Mm. British Crown colonies. All employees must now wear orange socks. They're they're issuing new equipment. You know, it turns out that someone had had a, had played golf with someone someone in Germany, and now you get a shipment of these pro, these prototype German devices that should make everything work much better. Right. This, we emphasize the word prototype here. Right. Yeah. <laughs> all of a sudden, you get this directive that says, you know, we've changed our vendor. Therefore, all personnel must now use Apple computers instead of PC computers. And, and then a year later, no, it changes back the opposite direction. And, and you're, you're basically required to change over to the new system because that's the one that's supported. That's the one that they're paying for. That's the one they have licenses to. Even though you're out there on the French Pass somewhere, your stuff is still licensed by some organization back on Earth Prime. And if your license is run out, you don't have a right to use that equipment anymore. Let's see them enforce that. <laughs> uh, the bureaucrats in the offices will, will do that because they'll probably have access to software that will just kill your computer. Or it has a logic bomb that has to be defused by you bringing in a, a, a dongle every once in a while to plug into the back of your computer to, to reset the new password that it needs. If it's an administrative network, all the computers are basically glorified terminals when it comes right down to it. That sounds efficient. That sounds like it would go down just as soon as something really stupid started happening. Yeah. <laughs> A lot of times they want to keep the control centered inside the colony. You start handing out equipment to the natives. You don't want the natives running off and doing what they think they should be doing with that equipment. Oh, no, you want them doing what you think they should be doing with it. So you make it so that everything has to be administered by the colony. Yeah. And, and, and this is why I think this is why you would see this kind of colony, especially from the U.N., because you're dealing with natives. You're dealing with locals. and. They want to make sure you have proper oversight in your dealings with the locals, which means you'll get the latest psychological claptrap for dealing with the locals on a regular basis. <laughs> Management ex experiment lab number 14. We're going to see 
how management works when every manager speaks only in pig Latin. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's basically because the UN really wants to make sure we, especially the General Assembly, the one dictating this. So of course it's going to be, they want us to do what? You know, well. You can't demonstrate that you're superior to them. So everyone, whenever you're dealing with the natives, you must dress like them and use equipment just like they use. You can't use any any, any high technology around the natives. <laughs> so whenever you have a problem, you have to basically leave the colony and go back to the outside organization and present your case. And they might say, "Yeah, oh, yeah, actually, you know, you make a good case. That's not good." Or they may say, "Sorry, we have other reasons why we want you to implement this. You're going to have to do it anyways." That's just the way it is. They you have to go back. You you have to appease or or you have to, you know, get the blessing of this outside organization to implement any major changes or deviations from whatever it is they send you as your standard operating procedures. I was going to say, so it's the Supreme Court, the Parliament, the the King. You're going back for, I don't know, somebody to tell you you did it right or you did it wrong or this is how you should have done it, and then they pat you on the head and send you back. Yeah, or the worst case scenario, they form a committee to study the situation. <laughs> Which we'll get back to you in a year once they study the situation based on the available data. <laughs> Imagine Australia in the 19th century when you needed a ruling from the Supreme Court. <laughs> yeah, it, it was about a year on a sailing ship to get to Australia in, back in a day. And so any messages out had a year-long travel time. And then the reply had a year-long coming back. Right. right, but that wouldn't be the case you know, on the French Pass. Well, it depends on how far away you are, really. If you're that far away, you're still going to have – I mean, there's no point in having the colony unless you're, like, doing what we talked about, which was to have some kind of a biological reserve. If you're out there as a colony, you're expected to have regular communication. In a modern society, I can't imagine them saying, yeah, yeah, we well, if you get an answer back in six months, we'll be happy. I can't see that. It's, you wouldn't have an outside organization in charge of it if it was that slow. Yeah, I think at this point you'd actually have the, the proper keys to go all step on the platform, put them together for 30 seconds, the French train shows up, you get on board, beep, you're there, and you get off and deliver the message. <laughs> the French train? The French train? Bruce, last time we talked, you said there was no such thing. No, I did say there was French trains. No, I, I was I was going to bring them up, and Bruce said, what French trains? There are no French trains. <laughs> It's just a question of how many of them there are. I mean, it, people act as if there's like, you know, thousands of them waiting out there to be called. And right, there may only be a few of them. The system just doesn't conjure one up when you need it? Well, it, it just depends on how many people are out there asking for the French train. Maybe all the French trains are unavailable, you know? Are you on the blue line or the red line? Cause... I mean, if the, if the purpose of the French train is to provide engineers on what is mostly an automated system, which is the fringe pass, access to specific areas which will fail very, very rarely. I mean, how many fringe trains do they actually need? Well, they, the system is a, a million, million worlds. But if your failure rate is one in 10 billion or something like that, you know, you might only need... Uh, like I say, uh, a, a thousand French trains. And so now that people are out on the French pass using them as their primary means of transportation around because the big system doesn't work anymore, and you've got you know, 10,000 people calling for the French train at any moment, well, your chances of getting a French train go down rapidly. Wow. 
And you might have to wait a while, you know, a couple days maybe for a friend's train to show up. It's Rush Eon. I'm thinking that sets up for a really hilarious NPC moment. We've all ridden public transportation. Imagine you call the fringe train, you step on, and there's already people on board. It's like it's like that uncomfortable moment when everybody gets in an elevator but can't make eye contact. And only two of them are human. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I actually had that problem because I, I'm not used to sharing a cab with anybody. Uh, I'm used to basically calling a cab. Cab shows up, takes me to where I want to go, and I pay him. Okay. Well, the first time I called a cab, got in the cab, and he drove over to somebody else's house, and they got in too. I was like, "What the?" <laughs> it was, but that was there were only a limited number of cabs, and everybody wanted to go to the train station, so they were very. This was the common behavior in this small town, and I was totally unexpected, uh, not expecting it. So yeah, I understand exactly. How how did you work out sharing the fare? I had that happen to me as a cab driver a couple of times. I basically figured I got screwed by the cab driver. He said, this is what you pay. I'm like, uh-huh. And so I basically, when I got back on the train, I just walked back to, it was a couple miles. I just walked back to where I was staying. I said, I'm not doing this cab business anymore. So what might, what might be a little better would be the internal tribunal, where you actually have a bunch of guys, more than one person, so you actually have more people to appeal to, a committee or whatever, whose job it is to rule over the colony and to resolve issues that might come up. The governor and his, his cabinet, more or less. Well, yeah, because it would be really, really comfortable appealing to a chief of staff when the governor just stole your, just stole your lollipop. They all have an equal vote. When they make a vote, everyone raises their hand in, on the tribunal and or whatever it is, you know, the quorum, and you, you tally it up, and either it's done by a majority or it has to be unanimous. It just depends on how they decide to set it up. If one person won't listen to you, you can go talk to somebody else, and maybe they'll see it a little differently. My city right now runs on a city council method. We do have a mayor, but as you said, he gets one vote, but he actually only votes if there's a tie. So yeah, you have a governor. He only votes if they're if, if the if the council's divided. You know, there basically is a is a tie, and then that he just he, he casts the tiebreaker at that point. All right. Well, that's that's a good example, John. Thank you. I mean, we're like a, like the city government. That would be yeah. That'd be a, a probably a lot more palatable for most people as far as you know their their rulership is concerned. I know a lot of people get really hinky about the whole you know government thing. You know. You have to be careful with your audience before you start bringing this kind of stuff up. I kind of fell afoul of this uh, when I ran my first Fringeworthy game. I was talking about this. I uh, had the player. I was a one-on-one game. So the player and I were doing the -the behind-the-scenes world building about how the world reacted to finding the fringe paths. And uh, our view of politics was so different. It led to a number of uh, frank, frank exchanges of views. There's another version of the internal tribunal, which is the clan system. Each head of a family has one vote. And you sort of have to give and trade alliances, intermarry children, uh, divide land, resources to buy votes. That's kind of falling back down to our next one, which was department heads all get a vote. You're starting to get a a representative type of, of government system where Power isn't just concentrated in just a few individuals. It's actually concentrated amongst a large aggregate population. Right, but the difference would be uh, power is not hereditary. 
Yeah. Now here's a question for the, for the internal the tribunal. Would they vote people onto the council, or would it be by lot? There's a hundred people in the colony. The council of five. Let's just make a nice little simple num- number. But the the Senate instead of having voting factions, there's the governor who's appointed by, backed by the whoever appoints him, and then the four members are well chosen by lot. Clifford Simak wrote about a system kind of similar to that in a book called The City. Instead of short stories set in his imaginary you know, in the imaginary New York of the future, where all of the uh, civil service positions were filled by normal citizens uh, who were selected by lottery. The thing is, I don't think there's any one right answer for any of these. Yeah, We're spitballing how things might be, and you might find any number of different colonies out on the fringe paths run any number of different ways. Right. That's what I was saying is that we don't want to get too far into the nitty-gritty on it. I mean, you can have a county it's a mining county, so it's, it's broken up into different different jobs, and so that each each profession gets a, gets a seat in the council. That's another way of doing it, too. Right. Well, that's why I say department heads all get a vote, where you've got the transportation department, you've got the people who do craft services, you've got the medical staff. Uh, they set up everything like a union hall. They elect a union head. Basically, you have to vote for everything, which actually falls to the last one, which is pure democracy. Right. Well, that's where everybody gets a vote. Everybody, you know, any, anytime an issue comes up, you basically call everybody into the big main meeting room and you, you lay it out the information. Says, okay, what are we going to do? And they put some ideas up, and everybody raises their hand. Or you send them a message on their on their uh, smartphone. Right. We're going to do X. Yes. No. Yeah, you could just do it while you're standing there. You can you can just pull everybody in the colony. You got 15 minutes to respond. One of the interesting things that I noticed about this, I ran an organization where I was the chairman of the of the business meeting. We would have people who were doing different jobs elected by the group we were serving. But then once a month, once a month, we'd have a meeting with all the people we were serving and present them issues and take votes. The interesting question was, how do you set up the agenda? Now, the second agenda was be fine. We'd present that to the people we were serving and ask them to take a group conscience on it. But the first one, and the first one generated some controversy because I figured we'd just pull one out of our butts and then make it better the next business meeting. And I got some, uh, I got some static for, for being a power-mad lunatic for just slapping together an agenda over what people would vote for, even though you could bring up things you wanted to discuss in that group. People felt like I was behaving illegitimately by just faking it until we could get to the point where we were getting guidance from the group conscience. There's also the problem of the, of the tyranny of the majority with a pure democracy. Mm-hmm. If you start developing cliques, one click will, will never be in the majority. They'll always be a minority, and they'll always get the short end of the stick if, if there's certain uncertain votes. So one way, another way of doing this is that you really don't vote. You build consensus until everyone agrees. That's called the covenant of unanimous consent, where the only thing that happens happens if everybody involved in it agrees to it. Some people would say that that would be a really, really unwieldy uh, system, and I'm saying good. People who are too focused on systems need to sit down and meet with each other endlessly and get out of the way of those of us who are doing real work. Otherwise, you end up with the tyranny of the majority, 
and whoever is in the wrong click or group ends up getting the short end of the stick all the time. Mm-hmm. It does happen. Yeah. Any more on ruling bodies? I mean, these were broad categories. That means anytime you think you have a really, really cute and effective system for governing a colony, when you try to put it into action, somebody's going to find the holes for you and break it for you. Also, presenting this to the PCs. Players will delight in finding ways where this doesn't make sense and pointing it out to you or going into the colony and making chaos for you. That's what I would expect. You know there's going to be players that are going to start gaming it just the moment they get there. I think that's part of the fun. In tribal societies, are roughly 30 people. Uh, a lot of the Native American tribes were like this across North America. Everybody had a say. In these smaller tribes, the chief wasn't like in charge as like a king. He was just the wisest man. He was the one that was most respected. So while everybody had a say, like they would sit around and they, you know, they'd all get in the, the in a circle or whatever, and they would all have a say. But most people respected the chief's final decision on things. But there, it was fine to dissent. So that was sort of like I think that was more like a, an internal tribunal. What sometimes makes this work a little better is if you don't like what the, the people on the council are saying, if you have the ability to replace them by challenging them, then you can end up with the council that you want. I'm kind of trying to picture the part of the corporate uh, employee handbook that covers honor, tra- honor challenges, and I'm not really picturing that well. <laughs> We're talking about it's, all kinds of colonies. It, it doesn't have to be an IDET colony. The vote of confidence is pretty close to that. Okay. Well, it, there's no there's no knives involved usually. So I, no, if you basically call a vote of confidence and you don't get a majority of people voting in your favor, you're expected to put in your resignation. That's pretty much the same thing. There's also the last the last form of, of organization, the lazyocracy, and we're using it here on this podcast where we stand back and let Bruce do all the work and then make him cry. <laughs> You do want to look for an example of pure democracy, coupled with absolute dictatorship, is a pir- our pirates. Yeah. They vote the captain in, and if they didn't like what he's doing, they vote him out, usually and put him on a boat. In the pirate society, you basically have a vote of confidence if, if you don't like what the captain's doing. But in, until you do that, he's an absolute ruler on that ship. Blackbeard the pirate kept, kept his position no matter, what, no matter how bad things got. Because it's his force of personality. Yeah, he scared the pee out of everybody around him. <laughs> he said, I would act like a total maniac at all times and nobody will cross me. And it worked. That's government. So I think our next one is ownership. Who owns the colony? You could own the colony and not actually have any say in, it, in its operation. There was a uh, system they had uh, back in the old West days called homesteading. Whereas you found a piece of land that wasn't being used and you put markers on it and, and improved it, you could claim that as yours. On the other hand, claim it to whom? I mean, the claim is only as good as, as who, who's enforcing it and who's helping the owner enforce it. Usually it's, it's like, say, the territorial government and, and, it, and it's backed up by their soldiers. Right. So if a colony has a territorial government and a soldiers who recognize that kind of homesteading uh, claim, then that would be a workable situation. Or if you had people who were for hire to help enforce a claim, if you uh, needed that kind of assistance, it doesn't come up all the time. 
you could also publish claims publicly, and and if your colony is arranged that way, people could read it and go, oh, okay, well then that's his his part. Then I'll go get another part. Well, I suppose the question isn't the nitty gritty of how this works, which Bruce specified we're not getting into, but how it looks when the PCs get there and what sort of story it leads into. Right. I think the first one he, he we got listed in, in Bruce's list here is, of course, everyone's favorite form of government, socialism. <laughs> or communism, where no one owns anything. That works so well for the Jamestown colony. Yeah. <laughs> it does work because, you know, when you sign on, you're going to get X number of shares in the colony. So when it, if the colony has a profit, then you know what part of that profit is going to come to you. You may not have any ruling ability as far as that's concerned. Someone else may be making the decisions as to what the colony does or where the colony tries to make its money. But at least you know that if the colony does make its money, you know what your piece of the pie is. People only work as hard as they think their neighbor's working. It also depends on where your level of power is. If you're, like, say, the department head, you're saying that you're the crew boss, well, you can work really hard. If your guys are slacking off, well, then... You know that then you go in and you say, "Hey, we need to replace these guys." Someone goes and pays off their shares, you know, of of nothing because we're not making any money yet. Get new guys in, and those guys start working hard, and all of a sudden you start being more profitable, and those guys get the benefit. And so it could be a self policing kind of thing. I can actually see a tally board saying, "If you have twenty shares, here's what you're." Worth. You can look at the tally board and saying, right now I'm worth $10. We need to get some work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's a good thing. It's just, you know, at, all the shares will be paid out on this date. So, and then we start over again, you know, to with, with more profit. If they're going to slack off, then they know when to slack off, which is at the beginning of each cycle. It sounds like the contract, the contract colonies, that, colonists. That is, uh, I invested say $10,000 in this colony and I bought a hundred shares for that $10,000. So a thousand, you know, they're whatever that number is uh, per, per share, you know, buy-in cost. I'm looking to hoping they make a million dollars on those hundred shares. Right. You know, so I'm, I'm constantly watching that tally at that point. And once they get a million dollars, I'm going some, if you can find a buyer for your shares. Sure. Yeah. 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 Or you reinvest, you know, you reinvest a million dollars and you get, yeah. More shares. It basically depends on how the shares are designed. I mean, if the shares are freely tradable, then you can sell them to other colonists. You can sell them to off-world people, which wouldn't work because it has to be someone who's there working. That's the idea. There actually would be a market. I would think there would be if they're freely tradable. Yes, you can deal with it. You could deal the market because one question is in this sort of situation, if you have ownership, what's the medium exchange? We're talking late campaign, so. A lot, of, a lot of mediums of exchange are going out, the, going out the airlock, so to speak, because you know we found we find too much precious metals, too much of this, too much of that, and you okay, gold, gold's worthless now. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, if you're out there as a colonist, yeah, and you're exporting materials, then there's got to be worth something to somebody. Yeah, and there's got to be some sort of medium of exchange at this point. Yeah. Not sure what it is, but I mean, it could simply be something where we're selling this stuff to World A, and on World A, they have a tally saying we owe you this much in goods and services. You know, whatever our local medium of exchange is. So, so when you go there, you can buy whatever you want using that medium of exchange. You know, it's 
I, that's how I would set it up. It would be just kind of a the way banks do, you know, things where they trade checks in the middle of the night in a parking lot. It'd be letters of credit, right? You yeah. know, corporate script. Yeah, yeah, corporate script, letters of credit, which are only as good as the government that backs it. Depends on the government's agreement with other governments of what what they're going to back up their script with. Some folks might ask for something with something they see as intrinsically valuable so that they can take it somewhere else and trade it without having to uh, trust that their government's going to do what it says tomorrow. That assumes what is the medium of exchange amongst the new commonwealth? What does everybody value? It's going to be like it is now where money is really whatever we say it is and whatever people agree it is. The most valuable thing in the late camp, most of everything, no matter what, is going to be crystal keys, working ones. They're the only ways to get in and get out of these portals. So, yeah, you get paid in crystal keys if there's enough. And they're relatively short supply. Yeah, I don't, I don't think that crystal keys would be common enough to be used as a medium of exchange. No, I don't think so either. No, but Tumelon Tech is going to be also limited as well. So various pieces of working Tumelon technology, working Commonwealth technology... How do you trade that for a couple tons of wheat? Yeah, how do, how do I make change for a Tremelin hover car? How's a colony buy food with that? It depends on what means you have of working with certain materials. If, for example, Tremelin's metal can be worked with by certain machines and it's really, really tough and they determine it's really, really valuable, they could give you a brick of Tremelin metal and it'd be worth X amount. If they have enough of it, they could they could use various specific weights of it as a medium of exchange. Sure. I recommend the works of uh, Ludwig von Mises and Murray Rothbard about money. They, they describe it pretty clearly. Or you get a mating pair of greebles. <laughs> well, you could tell by, you know, the weight and consistency of a Tremelin metal coin. If it was real Tremelin metal or if someone was, you know, stamping out... A, aircraft grade aluminum and trying to pass it on you but with its value as as something you could turn into a tool you're just not going to be able to use it as a medium of exchange it's it's going to be invaluable wherever it's used you get script then you end up getting fiat money at that point again we end up with fiat money Wait which we have right now uh yeah yeah let me see the color of your tremelin metal there yeah, <laughs> yeah peter you're gonna say something uh yeah i was gonna say that that it, it always boils and it always goes this way. You always have to have money. You cannot have an economy without some kind of money that people can spend. And I mean, spend readily. You know, you can't you can't just spend these. You know, can't spend crystals really. I mean, you you could you could yeah. use them as as a backing. You know, a crystal backed system. You could have something like that. Uh, just because their value is so unbelievable, you can't just buy a little yeah. stuff with it. And that's the stuff right. you need to buy. What I see happening is a bank forming it, a interdimensional. Somebody's going to step up and they're going to form an interdimensional bank because it's going to be required. Mm-hmm. You know, because you've got different worlds with different currencies, they're going to have to be able to exchange it. You're going to have to, you know, you're going to have people coming from different places and they're going to want to get paid in quatloots. <laughs> the, the problem is, uh, you know, uh, on Earth, gold consistently comes up because it is what it is and it's hard to fake and you can shave it off in really small amounts and use it or, or carry it around in bricks. It has mechanical properties people like. But if the next world over has a different laws of physics, it may not be – the gold may not be gold there or it may be like a fantasy role-playing world where they're swimming in the stuff. Right. Yeah, if you're talking about gold, you, you, one of the alternate worlds you can find is Cibola, 
seven, the seven seas of gold that just crashed the market on Earth Prime for gold. Okay. That's exactly why I said you might have a crystal-based system. Yeah, you have, you have to pick something because we're on fringe where then you have alternates and you have you know worlds that could have anything and you know the physics could change here or there. So what you need to do is you need to pick something that's fringe centric, something that's going to exist on all worlds and is going to be a consistent physics because it's the fringe path. I, I like the idea of a terminal and metal uh, system because you have to use crystal keys all the time. Then they could issue script based on certain weights of Tremelin metal. And if you're feeling like the system is messed up, you can go down to the bank of the fringe and, and pull out all of your Tremelin metal and run away and hide. Bury it, bury it under your mattress. I say, how about something even darker? Genetic material. And the problem is, how do you monetize that? Because once I have your, D- once I have your DNA, how much of your DNA do I actually have and what, what could I use it for? Except to exchange, and then you're talking about a fiat currency, something that that's that's worth something simply because uh, somebody in authority said it is. It's designer DNA, thinking like Blade Runner, that that sequence of genes for perfect blue eyes with far sight and no astigmatism is signed. You could trade it, you can use it for currency, but if you replicate it, then everybody else who does the trading system is going to come down on you like a ton of bricks. It's the only currency that you could swap back and forth. Let's move on. You know, the, the, uh, some of the other ones where the colony owns everything, but uh, until the members are willing to pony up a certain amount, at which point they then can buy something that the colony owns, and then it's treated as private thereafter. They still have shares, but they are able to start making their own little fiefdom, so to speak. What else do you have on the topic list? I saw it, but it was way, way up there. Well, besides this, we also have what kind of support can an explorer expect from a colony, and as, as John said, vice versa. Are remote colonies just foreign power center detectors? When is it okay to lose a colony? And then finally, what kind of defenses would you expect a colony to have? All of those are kind of conditional on what the purpose of the colony is. If I were an Earth person and I heard about an Earth colony somewhere getting wiped out by somebody, I would be upset. I don't think I don't think there's ever really an okay time to lose a colony. Do we want to finish this stuff about ownership before we get to that? I mean, we can jump down to that next if you want. Profitable system would be the buy-in. Once the colony reaches a certain operable level, then you can buy out. So you get your part of whatever was produced, whether it's whale oil or diamonds. You don't get it until the colony reaches a certain sustainable level. And that kind of keeps everybody in. Or it's paid back as initial investment. There's also the way they ran the the Old West towns back in the day. They just advertised, say, come on out here and you can live a happy life forever. And people get out there and find out it's Tombstone, Arizona. But after that, they were on their own, whether they could make it or, or, or... add something but there's a lot of colonies that are out there i mean even historically colonies were put to, sometimes they were put they're put together by people who wanted to make a profit or they were sponsored by an organization and they had to make their money back first and once that happened then they were says okay now we can start we we, we switch to a different profit thing before then ever, all the profit comes back to the initial investors until they get paid back their their nickel so they can turn around and invest their money somewhere else okay then you know, after that, then the money starts going to other people, which is one of the reasons why you might have a very draconian 
type government initially because they're basically we want to make money so we can start getting paid. We can't get paid until you guys bring you know fifty thousand gallons of crude oil back to you know uh, or whale oil back to the the initial investors. So Warlord Rick put it on his credit card and he's going to flog us until we get that paid off. Because he's paying interest on that credit card every month and he doesn't like that. I mean, he can't go and buy that new stereo because he's maxed out. And the corporate colony fall, so falls in that thing where the, the colony owns everything. In this case, the corporation owns the colony. Right. Like the Jamestown colonies, the people who were there, they all had invested in the colony. So they had a reason why they – so they, they, they weren't happy when they weren't bringing in lots of money. Not necessarily. A railroad would put in a uh, station and, and support for a train. If people needed a blacksmith, it was up to them to find somebody who's willing to provide that service and to pay them to do it. Or if they needed a doctor or if they needed other services, you know, it was a matter of attracting someone to provide that voluntarily, not necessarily, you know, uh, saying do it or else. Well, that's getting back to how the colonies form it. Is it a penal colony or is it a volunteer colony? It's probably never going to be a penal colony unless they, they figure out a way of making everybody fringeworthy. The only way you'd get a significant population of fringeworthy who were all criminals is if you started a political discussion among them all. <laughs> really? Because I think you could probably make a prison for fringe pirates. By definition, they're all fringeworthy and they're all criminals. Okay, that's a good point. And what are you going to do with fringe pirates if they throw down their guns and yell, I surrender? About half the players would shoot them down anyway and say, we couldn't trust him. But what do they do once they're captured? Well, if I wanted to do that, I would definitely want them surrounded by a much larger population on one of my worlds. I wouldn't want them really being a colony on their own. What if you had a key that would lock up a portal and you could just shove them through and say, We'll see if you have anything to sell in a year, and then lock the portal behind them. Let them figure it out for themselves. Use an Earth-like pocket stop, toss them in there, and seal the key. Every once in a while, you come by, you open it up, you look inside, you toss in some supplies that needed, you add more prisoners, and you close it again with your rainbow key. Yeah, I'd want to rehabilitate them. That's me. Yeah, and what you're describing there is uh, Escape from New York. Lord of the Flies. There's also uh, Firefly. Remember how Jane joined the crew? They just offered him more money. He never stopped being much of a pirate, but he was their pirate. And I have to say, you you probably want to cavity search those pirates because they're probably well, at least one or two of them swallowed a key. Well, okay, then we get into a whole different role playing game there. Yeah, <laughs> just an MRI. <laughs> The way you set up the ownership of the colony is going to always going to be a source of conflict because, you know, as we all know, anytime that somebody gets more stuff than somebody else, there's going to be, you know, tension. If you want them to hang around, make sure you set them up so they're stable. But if you don't care, then you can really go crazy with this kind of stuff. Eventually, if you come up with too many ideas that the players poke holes in, there's only one backstop, and that's somebody who's planning these colonies is just rolling some dice and spitballing to see what happens. Or somebody's nephew who got the position because he was connected. As we found in Fallout 3 and also with the Key X, it's somebody's sociology project. It's an experiment. This is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer. 
saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. This is Blix. Don't hate the game, hate the players. And this is Trav. There's a reason why it's called gaming. It's for having fun. Yo, brothers. This was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.